Christians, what, how we ought to be reconciled with uh, what sort of fellowship we ought to have with outsiders or wayward members and what exactly that looks like. And so in our discussion portion tonight, we are going to break down a little bit more of 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 and talk about, uh, really explore that conversation a little bit more. Uh, but seeing as reconciliation is a rebuilding of a relationship, it made sense in the brief time we have here to talk about what our Christian relationship with one another ought to look like in the first place. So tra- traditionally, and I use that word loosely, but throughout most of church history, uh, this, this kind of concept that we're talking about was either called fellowship or communion. It meant if you had communion with another congregation or another group of Christians, it meant you agreed with them, that, that you aligned, that you shared core beliefs. And of course, they called this this because it was based on the idea that literally when you took communion, you would take it together. You, you had fellowship with them. You aligned with them. And so if you shared the Lord's Supper, it was understood that you had a shared face and that, again, you were aligned on at least the important issues. And we'll return exactly, return to what it means to be aligned on the important issues exactly, the details of that. But I want to focus right now on fellowship. And we talk about fellowship. The the key passage I usually look at for that is from Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. And again, we're not going to get into uh, this at, at the full depth that they probably should be treated with. But I want to at least spend a little bit of time talking about what it really means to be in fellowship with one another. From Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll, we'll, just, we'll start by just taking a look at verse 42. From Acts chapter 2, this, this passage right here from 42 to 47 is really one of the first models of the early church. There's a lot of lessons we can take from this section. But from Acts 2, 42... And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So I want us to notice that in this listing of things that contributed to their their worship service and how they treated each other, fellowship actually got specific mention. It was called out as a specific thing. And so we can understand that this was really worth paying attention to. This is something that's not just, it's not just the teaching, it's not just communion, it's not just praying, but there's something special about our fellowship. And so, again, we use the word fellowship, and to some extent we do mean, as I've said, it traditionally meant through most of Christian history, we do mean a little bit of doctrinal agreement. We also see passages telling us about this time period, how they were in one accord. So we knew they agreed with each other, they had a shared faith. But this tells us that an example of the early church was that they had fellowship with one another. Potlucks and and social hours are great, but when we talk about fellowship in a Christian context, we're we're talking about they had a connection. They had relationships with one another. They, they, They had a deeper connection to one another that was rooted simply on the fact that they had a shared faith. Um, Flip over to 1 John. We see in Acts that the, the early church had fellowship, but First John 1 is, I think, going to shed a little bit of light on what fellowship means. Because, again, I think a lot of times when we hear that and we talk about fellowship in a church context, we think of complete doctrinal agreement. We think, well, they believe what we do. They do exactly like we do. So we can only have fellowship with those who are exactly the same as us. And without getting too off into the weeds here, I, I want to look at the way First John treats fellowship. 1 John, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 3. 1 John chapter 1. Um, you know what, actually, I'm going to... Verse 3, he's kind of in the middle of a sentence. We'll, we'll stop from the top of the letter. We'll take an extra minute. We'll read from 1 John chapter 1. We'll read from the top of the letter, verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life... 
So he's really just telling them, you know, John is, of course, the one who says his, in his gospel that Jesus is the word made flesh. He's, he's doing the same thing here, but he's engaging all of your senses. He says it's, Jesus didn't exist, but we, we heard him. We saw him. We, we looked upon him. He wasn't, not only was he real, he was very, very real. He was real as it gets. We interacted with him in the flesh. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that we, that, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And I want to pause right there. He starts by talking about Jesus, and in verse 2 he says, The life made manifest. So again, keep in mind, this, this all ties back to him. This ties back to his word, to his teaching. As John says, it's that which we have seen and heard we now proclaim to you. That way we may have, that you may have fellowship with us. So what is fellowship rooted in? Well, it's rooted in understanding of Jesus and Jesus' teaching. John says he's just relaying that which he has heard to Jesus, and he's relaying it to you so that you may have fellowship not just with him, but also with Christ. For he goes on to say, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing to you that our joy may be complete. So notice that when we talk about fellowship as Christians, it's, it's not just with one another, but it's also with Jesus because it is Jesus whose words and whose teachings actually connect us. We're not going to read the entire of chapter 1, but skip down to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. I want to talk about this as we talk about relationships and reconciliation and fellowship and well, how much association can have with somebody if they're sinning and are they wayward if they're a member or they're not. You know, what, what do we do? How do we handle that? Well, rooted in this scripture is this understanding that if you cannot say that you have fellowship with Christ, if you also walk in darkness, and you say, well, what is walking in darkness? Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it, it is not sinless perfection, as I think some would claim. We know all humans sin. All, everyone sins. Romans 3.23, I believe. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Unfortunately, as, as nice as that would be, we understand that when we become Christians, that part of our nature does not just vanish overnight. So he's not saying that if you sin, you can't have fellowship with me. But he uses this expression. He talks about walking in sin versus walking in the light. And that is where we get these ideas of people who we've talked about sometimes sinning with knowledge versus sinning without knowledge. Sinning versus living in sin. It is sometimes also a comparison made. So again, when we talk about fellowship in a scriptural context, it is not necessarily going to mean in a Christian sense that, that you and I are going to agree on every single biblical uh, principle and verse and interpretation that we come across, but... We should certainly agree on the important things. We should have a sh I mean, if, if we have a shared faith and we disagree on who that faith is based on, then we don't have a shared faith. If you're denying the humanity of Jesus, we don't have a shared faith. If you're denying the divinity of Jesus, we don't have a shared faith. And really, when we look at what it means to have a fellowship in the early church context, these were the kind of heresies they were denying. They weren't really having conversations about 
um, finer points sometimes of doctrine, but really when they were talking about Christian fellowship, they were saying some group over here said Jesus existed and a group over here said he did not. I mean, these were the basic doctrinal principles they could not get on board with. And so, so he, it, it's why John starts his letter by saying that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that's what we looked upon and touched with our hands and heard with our ears. And so he says, not only is fellowship with those who have seen and put their faith in and acknowledge and understand the teachings of Jesus, but understanding those teachings of Jesus should come with this idea that it means we are no longer walking in darkness, which means we are no longer living in sin. So when we talk about Christian fellowship, I want to really keep us rooted in this idea that, that we're all going the same direction. We have a shared faith. We have shared behaviors. I want to take a, just a moment, and we're going to flip back to Acts, and now kind of understanding everything John has said about uh, fellowship and what fellowship looks like, go back and read Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to teaching, to communion, to the Lord's Supper, to breaking of bread, whatever we want to call that, to praying, but also to, they devoted themselves to their own fellowship, to, to their own connections that they have in Christ, to understanding their shared faith, to communicating their shared faith, to, to making sure they were all a part of the same one thing. I don't really have the... the, the I don't want to take the time at this point to talk completely about communion, but I do want us to recognize that when we talk about fellowship in a Christian context, communion is a very, a very serious and important aspect of it. Uh, it's a very commonly used expression in church tradition and kind of church history to say that this church and this church has communion with one another. And, and what that means is that we can break bread together. We can not necessarily just eat at a table together, but to literally break bread in remembrance of Christ together. Why? Because we have the same faith. We have a shared fellowship. The Last Supper is recorded over and over and over as in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, do this in remembrance of me. And there are many, many purposes to that shared idea of coming together and worshiping together, but a core part of that is that communion, is remembering that sacrifice. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as Christians, we understand that once a week on the first day of every week, the New Testament church got together and their, their singular purpose of gathering, really, their main purpose of gathering was to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and to celebrate the fellowship that they have with one another in his name. And I think sometimes, even though we do this every week, and we do it the same way, and we do it the same way with the same people, it becomes very easy to, to feel like this is just routine, that this is just a box we check as part of being in church. Well, I have to take the Lord's Supper, I have to pray, I have to sit in my pew. And so we just kind of start checking these boxes, but I, I would really encourage you to let it be more than that. So much of what we do together, of what we call being the church, really relies on your heart and your mind being in the right place. I think I've heard Van say this about the, the worship service many times, that you get out of it what you put into it. Paul, I believe in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, he says, I pray with my spirit, but I pray with the understanding also. I sing with my spirit, but I sing with the understanding also. He's saying, There's, I, I do so with power, with, with, um, with liveliness. 
I, I do so with my whole heart and my whole mind. And if you think about Acts, 1 John, 1 Corinthians, in, in all of the things we do as Christians, that's really how we're called to do them. We're called to do them with our entire person, with our actions, with our behaviors. We don't just acknowledge that Jesus existed with our mind, but we, we live in such a way that this acknowledgement is made true in our lives. As we begin to close here and we just discussing this idea of fellowship, I, I would caution you not to overlook it. Not to reduce it to potlucks, although I love a potluck. We live in a world of ever, ever increasing isolation. PTAs, clubs, softball teams, bowling leagues, and even churches have been reporting lower and lower numbers for decades now, going back to about the 90s. And social media, ironically enough, has done nothing to reduce this trend, but has actually, the latest psychology will tell us, reinforced our isolation. I know in, in just my own experience, it gives us shallow fellowship. And here's what I mean when I say that. When, when sometimes, when I see somebody's pictures, when I see somebody's posts, when I see somebody's updates, what I've done is I've tricked myself into thinking I know their life. And I think a lot of times, when we come to church, we fill the pew on Sunday morning, but our heart's not in the songs, we're distracted during the prayer, and we're having to, maybe it's corral our whole family, or we're having to constantly pull the cards and the markers out of our kids' mouth. And so sometimes you just don't get the full impression out of worship. You leave with a shallow impression of fellowship because we haven't taken it seriously or we haven't been able to put our heart in the right place. And, and I understand that there's, trust me, I understand there's plenty of distractions that are many, many times out of our control. But I would really encourage you to, to do the best that you can to avoid shallow fellowship, but to really do so, as Paul says, with your heart, with your understanding, with your mind and the understanding, however you want to phrase that, but to do so with your whole person, with your heart, your mind, and your strength. As we begin to close our, our devotional portion of this, this time, I've spent most of our time addressing Christians, but as always, as is our custom, as is our practice, if you are not a Christian, those steps to salvation can begin here tonight. You can repent, you can be baptized into Christ, and you can join this family, join this fellowship. If there's any need for you at this time, won't you come while we stand and while we sing? Because I had intended to speak for about five minutes on Joel, and I think I spoke for about 25 minutes on Joel. And so I asked a really hard question, and that is, how much fellowship can Christians have with wayward sinners? And I said, okay, have a good night. Um, when I first started preparing for sort of the devos for our Sunday night Bible study, I thought, well, I'll bring a thought that's totally unrelated, and that'll kind of shift our minds, and then we'll talk about a thing for the discussion at night. And we did that a few weeks, and I thought, you know, it feels kind of weird and jilted that I'm having two totally lines of thought that have nothing to do with one, and why don't I tie them together? And then I noticed when I tried to do that, my devos just got longer and longer and longer. <laughs> and so I'll probably switch it up again next time, because I, as we dive into fellowship especially, this is something I really do want to have some discussion about. Um, and for those of you who are close enough to see, as I got towards the end of just our Devo portion, I started just scrolling past pages of notes, so I apologize if it, towards, if it sounded rushed toward the end, that's because it was. Um, let's start with looking at that passage from 1 John. Flip over to 1 John, and I'll have somebody else read this for us one more time. Because this is the closest we have to, to really a delineation made between... People that Christians fellowship with versus people that they should not, at least from my understanding of the scriptures. Someone read 1 John 1 beginning in verse 7 uh, and read from 7 all the way to verse 9. 1 John 1, 7 through 9. 
with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, uh, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Thank you. So, does, so is everyone at least, does, does what he's saying about walking in the light make sense? In terms of, I think oftentimes I hear the expression in the modern age, we, we make a distinction between sinning versus what we call living in sin. The unfortunate problem with that is living in sin, we tend to only apply to like one or two exact sins, but there's probably a lot of ways that somebody can live in sin. And so I try to kind of stick with the distinction he makes, and that is walking in the light versus walking in darkness. And John draws a distinction between sinning versus uh, walking in sin. Because he even says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So even John acknowledges, as even as Christians, yes, we will sometimes sin. But he makes another important distinction in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. So, by way of trying to answer our question from last week of how reconciled I can be with somebody who is sinning or how can I uh, how much can I associate with them I'll ask you a question based on this verse and I want to see what you guys' thoughts are if someone is denying or will even say they don't agree with your assessment that they are sinning how do you handle that are they someone whose sins are being Forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. I mean, one of the first that does um, recognize that you need help is admitting that you're not perfect. I, I have friends that have that mindset, and it is very, very difficult to have this type of conversation because they just they don't believe that they are sitting or that they are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And it's Yeah. Because it just, you get to the point where you don't get anywhere with them because they're so firm in that mindset. That... And I want to, I asked that question. I guess I want to make a distinction here. First John uh, is explicitly written to Christians. Um, I think really the only books of the New Testament that are written to non Christians are the Gospels. Um, so the letters to the church, by the nature of how we call them the letters to the church, are written to Christians. And so he is specifically, I wasn't sure, Michael, if in what you were talking about, if you were talking about just talking to somebody in the world, or if you were saying talking to someone who calls himself a Christian. But there's a key, key distinction in verse 9 that he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. If I am with some, dealing with somebody who is a Christian, the first thing I'm going to do if I'm trying to do the Matthew 8, 18 thing is go to them and say, Hey, I think what you're doing is wrong. And then they have a choice. They can agree with my assessment of their behavior or they cannot. Now, what next? Well, we are, at the end of the day, we are not the arbiters of what is sinful and what is not sinful. Our, our, our thoughts and our beliefs and our, I'll even hesitate to say, but judge, judgment, our discernment in that regard is rooted in the word. And I, it's very hard because there are certainly issues of 
not even interpretation, but there are certainly issues the church will have where doing things one way versus another are a matter of opinion. I'll even go a step further and to say there are issues that are issues of interpretation and people, okay, for example, I, I've heard, um, this is pertaining to the elders, uh, the requirement, one of the requirements for elders is a man of one wife. I've heard churches say that means a man of one wife, that he obviously should not be polygamous. I've heard someone say, well, it should be a man of one wife, period, ever. Like, well, the text doesn't say ever. The text also doesn't say at a time. So I kind of push back against both those issues. But just by way of example, I'm saying, to me, that is something I can say. I say, you know what? I can understand it, understanding it that way. I can understand understanding it my way. But if someone is living in behaviors that the Bible calls a sin, that is not really an issue of interpretation. Does that make sense? Because, I mean, I know that I'm the preacher and I'm the expert and I'm supposed to tell you there's no gray areas in the Bible and everything's black and white and real simple and easy and I have very bad news for you. It's not. Even the issues that require careful in-depth study, sometimes you come to a conclusion and you go, you know what? I don't know whether to understand this verse that way or to understand it this way. That's okay. And I'll start by saying, if you've ever felt that way in an impasse in a study with somebody over the finer points of doctrinal issues and applications like that, it's okay. I know we don't really like handling that approach sometimes, but I think that's a. I think with certain very small issues, like I said, when you're going through. But if we to go again, I don't even like this example, so forgive me if this is inappropriate because we don't even have elders, but. If you and I disagree on whether something is a requirement for an elder, neither of us are sinning no matter what our conclusion is, right? We're just disagreeing on what a verse means. If you're engaged in adulterous behavior and you don't want to handle it, that's not a matter of interpretation anymore now. Now one of us is sinning and the other is refusing to acknowledge it. And so what he is really talking about here, walking in the light versus walking in darkness, and that's... When you talk about confronting somebody with their sin and they want to say, you know what, I don't want to acknowledge my behavior, I don't want to deal with it, I don't want to handle it, that's not the same thing as we just believe different things on the Bible. And I know that sometimes we can get very contentious in our disagreements with people about Scripture, but I think it's very important to understand that there are some that are about sinful behavior and there's some that are just are, we, we want to handle it this way and understand it this way versus another hesitate to say this but questions because <laughs> i know we're wading into some very murky territory here but hopefully at least the distinction between interpretation versus calling sin when it is sin we can at least understand that Yeah. I think I'll address your example by using a way more controversial one. Maybe this will wake everybody up. I don't know. It'll just get me fired, one of the two. Um, it was a joke. I'm not going anywhere. Don't worry. It's not what the meeting was about. Not most of it, at least. Um, drinking. Should Christians drink is a biblical question that even, the, even within the Church of Christ, even within conservative churches, I've heard wrestle with. 
I can tell you plainly without question of interpretation that the Bible commands you to be sober-minded and not to be drunk. I cannot tell you that the Bible commands you never to drink. But if we sat down and we got in a one-on-one Bible study, I bet I could make a pretty convincing argument as to why it's not necessarily and most of the time a good idea for a Christian to drink. But what I just said are two very different things. I can show you the verse where he says, be sober-minded, where he says, do not be drunk as those of the night are drunk. I can't go to that verse and tell you, do not drink, because then I'd have a problem with the fruit of the vine and the Lord's Supper and the miracle at Cana and a lot, a lot, a lot of other verses. And, and so in a biblical interpretation, one of the rules that they'll kind of tell you is there's, uh, and you might, you might be able to help me out with this if I mess this up, but it's a direct command, necessary inference, and apostolic example. You get that right? Uh, yeah, or battery. Or just, yeah. Um, direct command is, thou shalt not kill. Necessary inference is what I would kind of appeal to in that second thing where I said, I could probably put together, if you were to tell me, what are the fruits of drinking? And then I can make a lot of arguments that drinking doesn't lead to a lot of places that Christians should be. Let's talk about how it impairs your judgment. Well, I can make a lot of arguments that being sober-minded means you should really be careful with anything that impairs your judgment. Um, be careful of your conduct among the Gentiles. Well, I can make a pretty good argument that if you're out in public and people know you as someone who spends a lot of time at the bar and not someone who spends a lot of time at church, well, that's not really keeping conduct among your Gentiles honorable. So I can make a good argument that it's not wise for Christians to drink, but that's different than the command where he says to be sober-minded. And so there's, there's commands in the Bible that are negative in the sense that they say, do not do this, like to your example, do not fill in the blank. But there's also commands, and the best example of this is the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, I have heard, you have heard it said, do not kill, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a man with, uh, um, I'm confusing two of them, who, who hates his brother or says to a man, you fool, has committed a sin in his heart. And that sets a much higher standard. And so now you look at, so any anger is sin, acting on the anger is sin. The distinction is Jesus is trying to tell you, stop thinking of the Bible or my word as something that just tells you, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But I want you to think of it in this light of, I'm going to set the standard and example, and I'm going to push you to adhere to that example in the absolutely strongest, best possible way you can. And so there's the commands of do not. But I think the commands of do are usually a lot harder to follow. Because <laughs> the, the commands that say, again, like I said, to be sober-minded, to as far as being possible with you, live peaceably with all men. Oh, my gosh. Live pe with all men? Have you met men? <laughs> right? <laughs> so those are much harder. But the truth is there are sometimes going to be middle grounds. But as Christians, when we go back to this idea of walking in the light as he is in the light, there's a pretty clear direction we're called to be pushed towards. And it's not find the line and step just one step over it, right? Like it's not to, and I'll tell you, anyone who has kids, I was notorious for this as a 13, we'll pretend it stopped at 13. Um, you know, they say don't touch the pew. Well, I'm not touching it. Not touch it. You can't tell me not, you said not touch it. You, you can't tell me that's wrong. I'm not touching it. And that's what the Jews did with the law. Like that's the whole beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. Is he said, 
the law said don't commit adultery, but that doesn't mean do everything besides adultery. You guys missed it. The law says don't kill, but that doesn't mean whip a man 49 times if you think whipping him 50 kills him. And so he says, stop thinking about it as don't touch the boat and just stay over here. And so a question I get into a lot of times with people in terms of addressing Christian living is then, so when does something that is not what he is calling us to do become sinful? And I'm just going to tell you that's not a question that I can answer in 30 minutes or honestly if he gave me 30 days. And I'm being serious, guys. When he says, go to Matthew 7. I've said when he says like a dozen times, and that's just dumb. Um, go to Matthew 7. You know, I'll just start with uh, judge. This is easy enough. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We'll just start there. Okay. Obviously, as Christians, we're called to be discerning. We're called to make good decisions. If I see somebody walk in here and I got a lot of questions about the way they're dressed, maybe I have questions about the exotic piercings and hair color they have, right? There's a time not that long ago that having tattoos would have gotten you turned to the side at the door at a lot of churches. Well, if I'm suspicious of them, am I judging them? Maybe. If I'm just trying to, you know, if I'm over here, I'm going to talk to the people I want to talk to, and I'm just going to, I don't really want to talk to them. Am I judging them? Probably. I mean, I can tell you when you're judging them, that's when you're saying, you shouldn't be here because you look like blah, blah, blah. Well, that's clearly judging them. Well, what if I just don't really talk to them? I can't, I can't show you a scripture and say that kind of behavior is explicitly sinful, but I can tell you it's not productive to being a Christian. And so when you really dive into the minutia and the nuts and bolts on topics like this, you're going to find yourself dealing with a lot of middle ground type conversations. But what I want us to recognize from 1 John 1 is that he is, he's trying to make the point that Jesus clearly is calling you to live one way. So anytime you find yourself even wondering, well, what's the least I could do and not be in violation of the way God is calling me to be, you probably already messed up. And the unfortunate reality is that is just the way our human minds work. At least that's the way mine did for when I was you know, a long time. The question I get asked all the time is, well, what's, what's essential for salvation? Everything. Yeah. And that's, I always go back to when Jesus, you know, he, they said, well, what's the greatest command? And, you know, he's, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, strength, and all your mind. And the, the point is getting at, if you can master that, you'll probably be in agreement with the rest of the commands. But which one of us could say, I've, I've mastered that? And so he very intentionally calls us to an incredibly high standard and over and over says, walk in the light. Adhere to strive for this standard. Work toward this standard. Fight to be in this standard. And so really the question is, if I ever find myself asking like, well, is this really a sin? You probably need to back up a little bit, right? And then as to evaluating somebody else's actions, if you find yourself in the position of, well, if I'm doing this, am I judging them? You probably need to take a step back and evaluate your own actions. And so I think as Christians, we just have to be very, very careful when it comes to drawing lines and saying, this is behavior we'll allow, and this is behavior we won't. 
Because truthfully, the moment we draw a line with somebody and we say, you know what, if you are living this kind of lifestyle, you can't be in the church. Well, now in accordance with Matthew 7, we, need to, we better make really, really, really sure there are no specks in our eye. And the problem we deal with is that there are some sins that are visible and there's some that are less so. We're just being honest. When I see someone who has clearly succumbed to a certain kind of sinner sensation in their life, sometimes I can see it on that person. And we gravitate. Is that a quick? I was just yeah. Absolutely. I mean, some of, the, some of the harshest treatment I've seen a church give a new visitor is silence. They didn't have to say a word. Um, but it goes, back, it goes back to the conversation that we had last week where we got a really good conversation we run out of time. And it goes back to Miss Andy's question, too, from last week. You know, it says, judge not that ye be not judged. And that's where the world wants to stop. But verse 2 says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And, and we're not being told there not to judge. We're being right. told how to judge. And, and uh, elsewhere in the scripture, we know that we shall be judged by the word. And yes. so we need to make sure that we judge by the word because we need to be discerning. We need to make sure that we don't cast our pearls before swine. And so we need to be loving we absolutely need to be loving. We don't, we don't need to spurn somebody. We don't need to have hate or malice in our hearts because the whole idea is, and I think this goes back to what Rhonda said in a different way, is that we don't want to look morally superior to anybody. If we are truly Christians, we care about their soul and seeing them get to heaven. Absolutely. And like the question that Miss Sandy asked last week, uh, well, you know, do we not want to, and maybe she can correct me because it's been you know, a little water under the bridge since last week. But, you know, we want people to come back. Mm -hmm. But if, if, they are, if they are walking willfully disobedient to God's word, because we need to make sure, you know, it's like the unmerciful servant. He judged with a harsher standard than he was judged because he was forgiven his debt. We need to make sure, because it says, as we judge, we will be judged. Uh, and we will be judged with the measure we use. It will be used back to us is what that says. And so we need to make sure that we don't add anything in there. And so what is sin, a lot of times we, we blur or muddy the waters with what is opinion. And, and then we get this opinion and we start trying to enforce opinion as if it were sin. Yes. And, but, but God's word, and, and, and I know I'm a broken record, but that's why we've got to be such an ardent student of God's word is because we are to... We are going to be judged by the word, and that should be enough, but also we are to judge by the word because we want to be careful. We don't condone sin. We must address sin, but we 
often fail in our execution of how we address it because mm-hmm. we point fingers and, and we have malice in our heart. And that is not what we're called to do as Christians. We want to see people get to heaven. And to do that, we've got to deal with the sin. But we, we need to be careful. We need to be loving. We need to, to be gentle. And we need to show grace like grace was shown to us. In, we're not in agreement with all that. We are never to point fingers because we have to be completely, if we got one stain, we have no authority to point fingers. Well, and I wanted, we preach, preach the gospel, yeah. let the gospel point the fingers because it does point fingers. Yes, and, and I again want to caution a distinction between people who are Christians and people who are outside. Um, you, you can never start a conversation with somebody who is outside by telling them they're sinning and they're wayward and they're going to go to hell if they continue their ways. But it, it, it's to your point about that we shouldn't judge. I think there's a ton of middle ground between judging and accepting sin. Like Our only two options are not accept someone when they're sinning or we're in danger of judging them. And that's where I think sometimes people get locked into it. Like, well, we don't want to be accepting what they're doing. I'm like, they know how I feel. I don't, I don't necessarily need to. The, the question I get that I've, I've heard before, quite succinctly put, I guess you would say, um, it was from an older lady in the congregation, and the family member was getting married, and they, they weren't having it at the church building. They were having it somewhere else, and they wanted her to come to the wedding. She said, okay, I'll come, and they asked her to be in the wedding. She said, no. They asked her if she would bake the cake for the wedding. So the lady goes to the minister. She says, so am I allowed to bake the cake? And it's funny. I'm laughing because the story is funny to me. But like the lady is in this, what she feels like is a devout moral crisis. And I think that's kind of the game we play in the churches because what we what we're trying to do is say, okay, so Jesus said, don't think of it as black and white. Think of it as appealing to the standard that He set. But how do I make it black and white? So am I allowed to do it or not? Well, do they know how you feel? Yes. Does everyone else there know how you feel? I mean, you know, we can ask a lot of these questions. At the end of the day, if someone is calling themselves a Christian, they know where you stand. You know where they stand. You've tried having a conversation with them, the word about it. If you have made an attempt to have conversations, I'll even say more than one, with that person about whether it would be kind of want to call it sin or just wayward behavior that is affecting their own ability and their own faith, and you've tried to have that conversation with them, I would say your, your duty, your responsibility as a Christian there is fulfilled. But sometimes, here's the real problem with that lady's question, because she was very devout. And her very, the problem was she knew if she made the cake, other people in the church would then say, I can't believe you did that. I can't necessarily tell you whether that lady was on this side of accepting versus judging somebody for their sin, but I can tell you exactly where the other people stood. That's judgment, plain and clear. We, we are not the ones given to say, you know what? Your actions are sinful, but your actions are okay. Well, in Romans 16, verses 17 through 20, Yes, um, I agree. 
I also fear that Romans 16, 17, and I can't ever remember if it's five or six about the. Mark, though. Yes. Big red X. The text does. No, my Bible says watch out for, so. I'm just kidding. I wasn't going to say that. I mean, either way, it says avoid them. But much like the stumbling block question, it becomes, so to go back to our ridiculous illustration of the lady who's baking the cake, who's the one causing the division? The lady who says, you know what, I love them. I don't agree with everything they do. They ask me to bake a cake, I'm going to bake a cake. Or is it the seven other ladies who are saying, I can't believe she baked that cake. I, did you hear Sister So-and-so made a cake for John and Lisa? I just can't believe she did that. I cannot. Much like the stumbling block question, a lot of times it, it depends on your perspective. You know, some people say they are, some people say they're putting the block down. Things like that are what church is split over, to be honest with you. And my problem in this whole grand scenario is not the lady who made the cake. My problem ultimately becomes the people who wanted to point the finger and say, that's sinful. Okay, I might not have handled it the way she handled it. I might not agree, but I want, I would urge us to go back to kind of our initial conversation where there are things the Bible explicitly prohibits. There are things that in standards he calls us and pushes us and pleads with and instructs us to adhere to. But there is middle ground sometimes, y'all. Like, well, and above all else, he tells us to love. It, love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah. You, you have to love them anyways, and that right there will be an example to help people. That's like if someone wants to become a Christian. You don't have to, I've heard it said before, to be baptized, um, you don't have to go take a shower first and get clean. The baptism water gets you clean. You know, you don't have to get washed up to get baptized, and you don't have to be perfect to become a Christian. That walk is what helps you to be better and better. And everyone is in a different place in their walk. And when you, I've seen it so many times when you have that hard nose for someone that is just not accepting and ready to fix their sin, yeah. that it pushes them the total opposite way. And then you lose the church. You look because bit by bit, people, they don't right. want anything to do with it because you're not going to love me if I'm not perfect. So why? Yeah, I, and you're right. I, there are many, many Christians who probably needed correction in their behavior, but were probably still saved. I mean, I'm not going to make a pronounced judgment. It's a hypothetical anyway. Um, there are many people who just had a few flaws who were driven out of the church. You know, um, you, you said something toward the very beginning that I agree with, and this is a principle I go back and forth on, on biblical interpretation with people. If I'm ever... I feel like I'm in a tie on something. Like I've ever feel torn between two options in terms of dealing with somebody. I always err on the option of love because that is quite clearly and obviously what Christ did. And I would agree, and I, I would attach to that what you said about Rome, Matthew 7. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people use, well, Jesus tells us to love everyone as an excuse to cover a, to, as an excuse to cover a multitude of sins, but... Love is still the attitude that Christians are called to over and over and over. And just for by way of example, I can find you two, one, certainly one, maybe two if we want to interpret it the right way, passages that give you a reason to disfellowship with somebody. I can find you at least a dozen right now that call you to unity. And probably a dozen more if we kept looking. And so 
what does the Bible devote most of its message to? Is, are we to be a fractious people or are we to be one? Are we to be a loving people or are we to be a judgmental people? And so I, what, as, as sane as this will sound, I think kind of the first thing we need to acknowledge is that, like I said on that spectrum of commands that we have, there's going to be gray areas. People are going to do things that they think was perfectly fine, but you're going to do, and you're going to think, I think that was sinful. But our goal is not to purge anybody who has sinned from the congregation, but for all of us to purge our sinful nature from ourselves and to sort of keep within ourselves a community by which we can help one another grow in love and, and spiritually mature love, as Christians. Love, love builds up, hate brings down. We've got true. to love everybody, regardless of who they are, what they look like, how wealthy they are, or how poor they are. They're all the same. This, this, God died. I mean, God's son died for everybody. The same. I believe it's in First Corinthians. I don't know the chapter, book, and verse. Forgive love me. Love builds up. Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. And that's one that took me a long time to understand. Um, I'm going to have to put a pin in that for now. So don't ring the bell on me again. Um, any? Can we finish up one other thing from last we week? We try. <laughs> because we also, I think you quoted First uh, Corinthians five twelve, uh, which says, "Because purge the evil from within you." Yes. No. no uh, the wicked one. From, that's not five twelve. I'm sorry. No. Um, oh, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if they are guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, irrelevant, drunk, or swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. So judging outsiders. Yes. The point there is because we, we we started down this path. We need <clears throat> to make sure that by the word we judge. Our conduct inside, inside, yes. But outside, it does no good to judge people's yes. sins outside because you might have somebody outside the body of Christ who is the most example citizen, the nicest guy. But if they have failed to obey the gospel of Christ, it doesn't matter. They are still an alien sinner. They are still lost. So our focus is not to necessarily judge them but to bring them to Christ, to, to show them a better way, yes. to show them how to walk in the light, to, to influence them to obey the gospel of Christ. But, you know, Charlie Manson and, 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 and the nicest guy you've ever met, it's if neither one of them have obeyed the gospel of Christ, the end result is the same. Right. Now, having a dinner party with them, yeah, there's going to be a great difference in who I'm going to t lean towards. But, but in spiritual terms, there is no difference between the two as far as what their eternity will look like uh, despite their behavior if they're outside. And that, what that verse says is God will judge them. Yes. Our purpose is to teach them the gospel of Christ. Yeah, I'll, I'll sum up that by saying it's, <clears throat> it's something I said last week, and I feel like it's very too often in the church what we try to do is we try to reach out there and govern other people's actions and hope somewhere along the way they'll get saved. When what we should be doing is focus on them getting saved, focus on them obeying the gospel, and then letting the word of God govern their actions. I'm sorry we didn't solve world peace in one night, but I think our discussion had some productivity to it, at least I hope. Uh, if I'm wrong, don't tell me. I feel like it was productive. Uh, I'm going to close us in a word of prayer.